You gave up life as you know it at 29 years old to be a caregiver for your mom, who has multiple system atrophy. I'm your host, Valerie Borgman, and today we're talking with speaker and host of the podcast, Young Life Interrupted, Adrienne Glusman, about the sacrifices she made for her mom, their journey together, and how she wouldn't have had it any other way. After a lot of back and forth, I said to myself, I just need to move. My mom's life was me. Everything that I wanted and I needed, she made the effort to do. I didn't think it was gonna happen this soon in my life, but just as much as I needed my mom when I was younger, now my mom needs me. Welcome to Desperately Seeking Senior Living, a podcast for sons, daughters, grandkids, and spouses who suddenly find themselves tangled in the search for senior living and care. If you liked today's episode, don't forget to subscribe and check out our doable download in today's show notes for a printable summary of the show and a bonus tip from our guest. So I am an only child of divorced parents. So my mom and I were always best friends. Even though I had my close-knit group of friends, my mom and I always just kind of had this common bond. It's like some people have it with their dad, some people have it with their mom. Mine was definitely with my mom. She was always just such an incredibly attentive, um, hardworking parent. Even though she worked a full-time job and was running a household, she always made sure that she was volunteering at my schools and engaged in my dance studio and always kind of being that parent that was super supportive, always around, always had time for me. So When I graduated from college, I made the decision that I wanted to move to New York City because in part, I kind of had the secret idea in my mind that I would eventually quit my corporate job and try to audition for Broadway. Mom didn't know that, that's for sure. But that was my secret plan I had devised. So I knew it would be hard for mom to let me go. So I can only imagine what it must feel like um, to kind of hold your child in this kind of a cocoon in this bubble of a world, but then also recognize when they hit a certain age, they have to release you and, and let you live your life. I moved to New York City when I was 24 years old. I always had this vision that once my mom retired, that eventually she would come up to New York to spend time with me. We could travel, we could take all these trips. So for me, moving to New York was just the icing on the cake. My mom loved New York and I was just super pumped for her to have the opportunity to come up and stay with me and experience more the city has to offer. I typically touch base with my mom. You know, usually I always called her in the morning on my way to work um, and would try to talk to her at night if I could. And there was one specific day that I can recall, I was on my way to work and I couldn't get in touch with her, but I kind of just thought, well, she didn't hear the phone. No big deal. I'll, I'll try calling her later. Well, the day carried on and I got caught up. And next thing I knew it was four o'clock in the afternoon and I still didn't hear from my mom. So I tried calling again, no answer. I reached out to a friend. Ironically, my mom had told me the night before that she was going to be having dinner with a friend that night. So I had that friend's phone number. So I reached out and I said, Hey, I know that you're going over to mom's to get her for dinner tonight. I don't know what's going on, but I can't reach her. Like, can you let her know when you get there that I've been trying to call her friend gets there, knocks on the door. There's no answer. My mom's car's there. She tries calling mom's not answering the door. Finally, she calls the fire department basically to break in. And they ended up finding my mom completely passed out cold in her bedroom, uh, unresponsive. You know, that's what I always say was the moment that I, I knew that 
my life was going to be forever changed. Fortunately, they didn't have to take her to the hospital, but mom couldn't recall what happened, if she fell, if she just passed out. We don't even know how long she was on the floor. It was just a very scary thing since she lived by herself to imagine me being, you know, a million, not a million miles away, but all the way in New York City in her home in Florida. Wow. I can't even imagine. And how great is it that you, that you knew her plans, that you had the information about her friend and were able to contact her. Yep. Totally. But I can't even imagine this happening with you being so far away. How old was your mom? So my mom was in her early seventies. So my mom had been diagnosed with Parkinson's disease. I didn't really think much of it because A, I didn't know too much about Parkinson's. It's not like when you hear someone gets a cancer diagnosis and there's so much information about cancer. I remember when my mom told me, I just wasn't even that taken aback. It didn't really make me sad. The only thing I really knew about Parkinson's was was Michael J. Fox. And I knew that he had a lot of kind of the shifting in his body. And I didn't really notice any of those types of symptoms with my mom. And she seemingly, she seemed okay. When I would go home to visit, there would be little things that she wouldn't do. Um, She lived in a second story condo. So sometimes I would get there and there would just be bags of trash in the kitchen, just like tied up lining the kitchen that she hadn't taken downstairs. And I would just, I never thought twice. And I always said, oh, mom, you're just being lazy because she had recently retired. So I just translated it into laziness. But come to find out that she finally admitted to me that she was scared to walk down the flight of stairs to go to the garbage. Oh my gosh. She was starting to get a little bit of the imbalance that comes with Parkinson's. And if I had to guess what happened to her when she passed out that day is that she fell, maybe lost some, some balance and fell, maybe hit her head or maybe tried pulling herself up or getting herself up and just from putting, exerting all that energy passed out. So that was a turning point. I flew home to Florida because I said, all right, I don't feel comfortable. This could easily happen again. At that point, I put a couple measures in place. I got her one of those life alert systems so that if she needed help, all she'd have to do is push the button And I said, let's start from there. That's kind of step one. Got all that in place, went home to New York. It was a constant series of ups and downs. If I couldn't get my mom on the phone, my mind ultimately went to something happened, something happened with her. And oftentimes something did happen. Oftentimes I had to fly home at the drop of a hat, just book a one-way ticket home from New York because mom fell again or something happened that ended, put her in the hospital. It was just getting to be too much for her to live on her own. So I started researching and I came upon this term independent living. So I said, well, you know, mom is still in the very early stages of of her disease. My dad's mother had been in assisted living. So I saw what that looked like. And I remember what my mom's parents being in a nursing home. And I'm like, well, she's not that far progressed yet. I wanted to touch on a couple of things that you said. The first one I think it's so important that you recognized when it was time to find a different option. Right. And I think this is the hardest part for a lot of families. And then as you're talking about the different options, I think that's a really difficult part too, is trying to figure out what the best fit is. So what did you think about the independent living option? 
was like, oh, this independent living thing sounds cool. It's kind of an elevated senior living community. It'll be great because she'll have friends. She'll get all of her meals catered to her. As a result of the Parkinson's, my mom was becoming a bit of a recluse. So she wasn't really reaching out to friends to hang out. So I said, well, this will force her to engage in activities and to socialize with other people. But then it will also allow for another watchful eye on her. We put my mom on the waiting list for an independent living. She and I went and toured a couple in the Tampa area. We finally found on what we love, but they had a waiting list. So we put her on the list and finally we got the call that they had an apartment ready. I came down, I I packed up mom's entire condo, got her moved into the independent living. So I'm thinking, all right, now we've taken that next step. Things will probably be a bit easier now that she's not living by herself. Now you can breathe and you can relax. (laughs) Now I can breathe. Exactly. Now I feel like I can go back to my life a little bit because I was just living in this constant state of anxiety when I was in New York. It was, it was crazy. And at this point, Adrian, how old were you? So I was 29 when I called the big incident happened. Wow. Um, when my mom, when my mom passed out. So I was 29. I had never really thought about myself as really having to dive into any of this until later in life. Like I said, I I had seen my mom do it with her parents. My parents, her parents went from living alone and then they got moved into a nursing home. And I have faint memories of when I was a child going with my mom on the weekend to visit my grandparents, but my mom was older and she had me. It was very strange to me that all of a sudden I was having to start looking into all of these things like life alerts and senior living and really trying to understand her disease more while also going out with friends and trying to figure out what I wanted to do with my life and, and date. It was this crazy, almost like living a double life. I like to say. Yeah. Yeah. I can totally see that. Cause on the one hand I was being a true 29 year old. Right. But then on the other hand, I was taking on these huge responsibilities that nobody, my age, I couldn't talk to anybody about it because everybody was young. Yep. Their focus wasn't on their parents. Their focus was just about being young. It was great that I got to be back in New York, but it definitely weighed really, really heavy on me. Uh, Even though mom lived in independent living, incidents happen because since Parkinson's is a neurodegenerative disease with no cure, it's only a matter of, you know, the next decline and the next decline and the next decline. So even in independent living, um, I remember coming home once because she was not able to manage her medication. She was taking way too much medication or not enough medication. And that landed her in the hospital. Wow. And you don't want to mess around with that, right? Medications that ends up being one of those things that is a trigger for families to get more care. So what did you end up doing? How did you approach that issue? I started researching home health agencies, which was opening up this whole new world to me, brought in a home health nurse and a home health aide. I actually installed cameras in her apartment, like those baby cams. I love that idea. I love that idea. I think I had four of them. I had one in her bedroom, one in the bathroom, one in the kitchen and one in the living room. So that if I called my mom and she didn't answer, instead of my heart dropping into my stomach, It was an app on my phone. I went into the app and I could say, okay, mom's sitting in her chair in the living room. She must have left her phone in the bedroom. So that definitely helped give me a a more solid peace of mind. Now, there were definitely times when I didn't get her and I looked on the camera and she was on the floor. 
But then I was at least able to call the security for the independent living and say, hey, can you go to mom's apartment? She fell. It was a little bit of a reprieve. It gave me a little bit more comfort in knowing that at least I can keep a better eye on an eye on her. But as she continued to live in independent living, she kept declining more and more and more. So in 2015, I actually in 2014, I had been toying with the idea of moving back home. Like I said, my parents were divorced. We didn't have any family in Florida. So it's not like I could reach out to cousins or anyone to help. And it was just all becoming too much. And I knew that things were only going to start getting worse. So I really struggled with it because at this time I had lived in New York City for a decade. I mean, it, it made me into the person I am today. I had a solid group of friends in New York City. I had actually just gotten offered my dream job right before I made the decision to move down. Wow. To have to sort of uproot your life, it it must have been so difficult. How did you make that final decision? After a lot of back and forth, I said to myself, I just need to move. It's, It's what needs to happen and I need to do it now. And I reasoned with the fact that my mom... My mom's life was me. She centered her life around me and everything that I wanted and I needed, she made the effort to do. So I said, I didn't think it was going to happen this soon in my life, but just as much as I needed my mom when I was younger, now my mom needs me and I just needed to be closer. What were those conversations like with your mom about everything she was going through and about you then deciding to move back. Did you have conversations with her about that? I didn't really, I, you know, I knew of course, more than anything, my mom would be elated if I lived closer. I know she missed me so much. And, uh, you know, at that point I was really only coming home maybe a couple times a year, maybe during the summer or the holidays. So I knew my mom would be like, yep, come home. Like <laughs> no big deal. But she also, but she also would always say to me, Adrian, you know, one thing that was really amazing about my mom is she was not selfish, even though she probably knew that having me closer would bring more comfort um, and care to her. She always said, I don't want you to give up your life. I want you to keep living your life. Don't do this for me. But it was my decision. It, it didn't really involve her because it's something that I knew that I needed to do. And ultimately I said, mom, I've made the decision. I'm going to move back to Florida because I want to be closer to you. I want to be more involved with your care. The reality was that I didn't know too much about the prognosis of Parkinson's. I mean, it wasn't a rapid degenerative disease. So I knew it wasn't like, oh, we only have two weeks or two months. I had a feeling that we were going to have some time. And because I had spent more than a decade living away from her, I also thought, let me be close to her. Like, let's be able to create some memories, even though this is going to be a tough journey. I I didn't want to go back to my hometown, which I know for a lot of people isn't an option. I said, let me move down to Miami. At the time I was working in hospitality. So I said, there'll be a lot more opportunities down here. And I actually had some best friends that were living down here. I moved down to Miami and I said, let me try kind of doing for a year, the back and forth between Tampa and Miami, which is an eight hour round trip drive. So every week on my, on my two days off, I would go up to Tampa. I would make sure things were in order for my mom for the week, spend time with her and then come back to Miami. I did that for an entire year. 
because I wanted to make sure that Miami was where I wanted to, I guess, like root myself for a while before uprooting my mom and bringing her down. So Easter 2016, I moved her down to South Florida. That was like a whole nother transition because while she was living in independent living, I had to really have a hard reality check with myself and put myself and what I wanted aside. What I wanted was to see her living in independent living. I didn't want to see her living in assisted living because I had gone and I had toured different assisted living facilities in South Florida. And I would say the majority of them, I turned right around and walked out and started crying in my car because it was just, it was just like, a completely different level than independent living. And while there were people in assisted living who were at different function levels, it was just still super hard to imagine my mom was ready for that phase. Did you feel like she was though? Like, were you torn? I knew in my heart she was, but selfishly I was like, but I want her to stay in independent living because at least in independent living, you know, people were still pretty able-bodied and doing for themselves. And the reality was my mom wasn't able-bodied. She was getting to the point where ADLs were extremely difficult for her. You know, she had to have a private aid help with certain ones. I was doing it for me, which I said, I, I was very selfish. I think a lot of choices I made for my mom, I, I felt like I was a little bit too selfish in, and I don't regret anything, but if I could go back, I think I would take those blinders off a little bit more and let myself accept what was happening, even though it's very hard to admit what's truly happening. Yeah. But do you think, do you think some of that is self-protection as opposed to selfishness? You know, that's a great point. A hundred percent self-protection. I even remember it, you know, towards the end of my mom's life. I mean, her doctor had talked about hospice months before, not because she was like in her final stages, but just because it was kind of inevitable. And I said, hospice, no way. Like my mom's not going into hospice. Like that's not happening. There are so many important things that you're touching on. Um, The denial is huge for so many families. And also what you said about assisted living and seeing the other folks that might be further along and feeling that independent living was more of what you like saw your mother in, but it didn't match the reality of what her care needs are. So again, this is something that I think a lot of families go through and it's, it's just so hard. So did you finally find an assisted living that you were more comfortable with? What, what did that look like? So I, found an assisted living that was actually an independent and assisted living community that were connected. So there was the independent on one side, and then there was the assisted living on the other side, but there were opportunities to be able to go. For instance, the independent living side had the theater where they had performers come. And so you people from the assisted living could go over to the independent living side. They would do monthly socials by the pool, and it was everybody together. So it made me feel a little bit better about mom being in assisted living. Yeah. I think that's a key part of it too, is, is that, you know, your mom better than anybody else and right. Feeling comfortable yourself is huge. Yes. A hundred percent. And a lot of people might think or be wondering like, wow, that's pretty great that, you know, her mom could have 
afford to live in a senior living community. Uh, We were by no means rich, but my mom in her working days, actually with our financial advisor, he got her on board into starting to pay into a long-term care policy. I always say with the physical, the emotional, and the mental strains of caregiving, the financial strain we did not have. And I couldn't thank my mom a thousand times over for putting that policy in place and just being extremely responsible with her money. Um, because that definitely gave us the freedom, gave me the freedom to find her a really good assisted living where a lot of people don't have that choice. Yeah, that's true. That's true. I wish we didn't have to talk about finances, but we do. And, and it, it is tough for a lot of families, but you're right. Having that long-term care insurance is a huge relief. I know that's one of the biggest strains, uh, especially on younger caregivers who are really just getting their careers in place and then also caring for a loved one. I mean, I know there's, I don't know the statistic, but a lot of them contribute a percentage of their salary towards caring for their loved one. Today's episode is brought to you by ClearPath Senior Living Solutions. ClearPath helps families find assisted living, memory care, and other resources. Find our contact information in today's show notes. You've mentioned caring for your loved one a couple of times, and we haven't even gotten to that part of the story, (laughs) which is a big part of the story. How long was she in the independent assisted living building? So she was there from 2016 until 2020. So um, I was caring for her. I mean, she was about 30 minutes away. So it was definitely different transitioning from a long distance caregiver to guess an in-person caregiver, so to speak. When I was a long distance caregiver, of course, at that point, I had taken over all of her finances. I was managing all paying all of her bills, all the finances, medication refills, doctor's appointments, all of that. But when I was in person, of course, it was still doing all of that. But I was also, even though she was in an assisted living, that wasn't like a dumping ground for me. Um, Right. She was still my mom. And even though I wasn't caring for her 24-7 in my home, didn't mean that I wasn't going to care for her. So every day after work, I would go there. I would be there for dinner time. I would get her in bed every night. I would spend a majority of the day, either Saturday or Sunday, spending time with her. Wow. So, I mean, I would say it was about 25 to 30 hours a week of caring for her. Um, eventually it got to the point where the assisted living said that she was progressing and that we would either need to bring in private duty aids so that she could have care around the clock, or she would have to move into a nursing home. She couldn't do any of the activities of daily living. So she needed assist with dressing, getting out of bed, toileting. Uh, she wasn't eating much, so she really needed somebody there monitoring her eating. At this point, was she on the assisted living side then? She was. And so there were AIDS, I guess, LPNs. I forget what they call them. Or CNAs. CNAs, exactly. There were CNAs on the floor, but of course, each CNA has X number of residents that they have to attend to. My mom was not demanding because she wasn't demanding it, but requiring much more of their time. 
So they were having to take away time from other residents. It was just getting to the point where she just needed more one-on-one time, especially because she had a neurological disease. Everything was a much slower process. Um, So everything took twice as long for her to actually process what was going on in her head, for her movements. So they couldn't provide the care that she needed. Exactly. She was at the highest level of care and they said that she could stay here. And while, while the CNAs provided care, my mom really needed more one-on-one attention. So I ended up hiring a private duty aide who would come in the morning, get mom up. This is while I was working, get mom up, kind of go through the entire day with her. She would leave early afternoon. My mom would always go down for about an hour to two hour nap. And then I would get there when my mom would wake up and get her out of bed and then take her through the rest of the day. So, um, it was good because she was able to have more of that one-on-one attention. And it was also companionship for her as well. Yeah. Having that, having that private duty aid there. Yeah. You have brought up a couple of things that I think are really important we talked about this a little bit, like you don't know what you don't know. Right. And the fact that you said, even though she was in an assisted living, you were still going to be a caregiver, Mm -hmm. I think is an option that some families don't even think about. And so I love that. And then Mm -hmm. I think hiring in-home care is also an option that families wouldn't necessarily think about. And of course, the finances you exactly. know, come into play with this, yep. but I, uh, it's, it's like you got creative in that environment. Mm-hmm. And I love yeah. that. And I think, again, like I said, I mean, finances aside, we were very fortunate that we were able to hire private care. Uh, yeah. If we didn't have the funds, that wouldn't have been an option. Yeah. And she probably would have had to move into a nursing home or I would have needed to quit my job so that I would be able to be with her during her waking hours. Yeah. I was just going to ask you, so you still had your full-time job and then you were also caregiving. Caring for my mom. So at this point, was your mom alone at all? Between the, between myself and her private duty aide, and then the CNA on the floor who would kind of pop her head in and check on her in that time between when the, the private duty aide left and I got there. And then also they do the overnight checks to make sure that everything's okay. I mean, with the exception of when she was sleeping at night and taking her nap in the middle of the day, there was never a period of time that she was alone. No, which was super important. And one thing I didn't touch on is that when I moved back home, I was working in hospitality and I wasn't really crazy about my job. And I was having to find that balance of work and then seeing my mom. Well, depending on where you live, if anyone lives in South Florida, you'll know what five o'clock traffic is like. (laughs) So I would say for the first year, I was trying to battle five o'clock traffic, drive from Miami to Hollywood, which is a city that's probably about 30 minutes north. Uh, in five o'clock traffic to get to my mom. And it was just extremely stressful. I would get there late. She'd be calling. This is when she was still able to like pick up her cell phone and call like, where are you? I thought you were coming. When are you going to get here? (laughs) Um, So I, I finally got to the point where I said to myself, I don't even like my job. What can I do so that I can have a more flexible schedule, still be able to make money, 
and be able to show up more for my mom. So I, I actually stepped into um, remote work, virtual work. I became a virtual assistant because that's one of the first things I Googled. And I said, <laughs> well, with all my corporate experience, I have this skill set for this. So I started out by working for a VA agency, and then I eventually decided to start my own VA agency and become an entrepreneur. That was really huge for me because I know for a lot of caregivers trying to work and find the balance of caregiving, so many have to quit their jobs, especially if they're 24-7 caregivers because the demands of work and caregiving, they just don't go hand in hand. So I can say that that was probably one of the best things that I had ever done, not only for myself, but for my mom, because then I was able to leave at two o'clock in the afternoon to drive to get to her to beat traffic. I would take my laptop with me because as long as I had a laptop and a Wi-Fi connection, I could work, but I could still be around my mom. Even if I was on the computer, like she could be sitting here watching TV. I would be working, going to doctor's appointments. I was able to take my laptop in the waiting room because we all know how long doctor's appointments take. And I always joke and say that my laptop saw the inside of like ERs and hospital rooms more than any other laptop because (laughs) countless times, you know, my mom would be rushed to the ER and we're sitting in the ER for 20 hours and I'm able to work from there. So, so that was really great in terms of allowing me more time to care give and show up for my mom. Mm -hmm. It, It took that pressure off that I was really experiencing in the workplace, even though my supervisors knew about my situation, I was very transparent with it. Um, It was still stressful because I wanted to be a good employee and I wanted to make sure I was performing to the best of my abilities. So mom, when I got her to South Florida, I had to get her all new doctors and I got her a new movement disorder specialist who actually re-diagnosed her to not having Parkinson's, but to having what's called multiple system atrophy or MSA, which like nobody's even heard of. It's, it's a rare disease. And basically she was diagnosed with MSA P Parkinsonism. So it has a lot of the same, um, symptoms as Parkinson's, which is why it's so commonly misdiagnosed as Parkinson's. But now she had multiple system atrophy, which was actually explaining a lot because also in addition to her declining Uh, balance and her ability to walk. She was having a lot of episodes where she was fainting because with MSA, like your blood pressure can skyrocket or it completely bottom out. So my mom started fainting a lot and passing out. Thank God she never broke anything. She never hurt herself, but that put her in the hospital multiple times. And so we finally got to the point where, um, you know, she wasn't using her walker anymore. She was pretty much wheelchair bound. Um, we were trying to make it so that she didn't do any transfers unless somebody was with her to prevent any falls. When you say trying to make it, was she trying to transfer on her own? She was because my mom was a very strong woman that always said, I can do it. Even though we would all say, don't get out of bed or don't get out of the chair unless someone is here to help you. And I can't tell you how many calls I got from her assisted living saying, don't worry, she's okay. But she tried to get up on her own and she lost her balance. Oh my gosh. Or she had a little fainting episode. Okay. How many times did you get that phone call that starts with, 
everything's okay. So true. (laughs) Which was almost a sigh of relief because every time I saw her assisted livings, the the name flashed across my phone screen. My heart, I was like, oh my gosh, what is it this time? I was honestly like getting myself, like starting to pack things up to get prepared to like rush out the door because I figured I was going to the hospital so many times. But fortunately it was like, not a, not an alarm, but we have to tell you, you know, it was really challenging to have to see mom give up her independence. I mean, she tried so hard. And one thing I can say about my mom is she never complained. She never complained about anything. She was pro I, I can only imagine seeing, witnessing this disease firsthand seeing the progressions, I can only imagine what my mom was feeling on a day-to-day basis. I mean, the woman is an angel, literally, and she never complained. The years went on and things started declining and declining. You know, it got to the point where, like I said, things were falling on deaf ears. It was like, well, she's not doing really well in a regular bed. She really needs to get a hospital bed. And I'm like, hospital bed? No way. My mom does not need a hospital bed. She's not as bad as everyone thinks she is. You know, I would always say it's because I was the daughter and I had superpowers because I would always say, well, when mom's with me, she eats. When mom's with me, she drinks. When mom's with me, she gets out of bed herself and doesn't need a lot of assist. So I was just under this belief that, but if mom's with me, she's always going to do it. So it must not be that bad. Yes, yes, yes. I think that is so important to pause there Mm -hmm. because I think so many family caregivers go through that. Oh, I'm sure. And that had me in a lot of denial because her private duty aides would send me text messages like she's not eating. She's not this. She's not that. And, And I knew my mom. It's just like I knew if I was there that I would get her to do these things like they can only be so strict with her. Um, cause obviously they're not her family and they can't cross certain boundaries, but, uh, yeah, I went through this stage of denial from getting the hospital bed to, you know, we really got to the point where it was even hard to transfer her from the wheelchair to toilet her. So it kind of got to the point that we weren't even taking her into the bathroom and we were just doing all the cleaning in the hospital bed because it was just too risky to try to get her up for fear that she would just kind of crumple and pass out from her low blood pressure, you know, we were just kind of doing the best that we could. And then 2020 came and this thing called COVID hit. And that was crazy. Fortunately, since I was there caring for my mom so much pre COVID, her assisted living facility actually considered me a caregiver. So I was allowed to continue to see her, which is a godsend. Yes. So while so many residents um, were without their families and only seeing them on FaceTime or Zoom calls, I was still showing up for my mom just as much as I was before. And, you know, I, I, I won't say that if there was no COVID that she wouldn't have continued to decline, but it was hard. I mean, residents weren't allowed to leave their apartment. Meals were delivered to the apartment. There was nothing going on activity wise. It was literally just staring at the four walls of your apartment. So. When I was there, we would mask up. They would let me take her around, like walk her around the community to at least get some fresh air and at least be able to get her out a little bit. But I I definitely think that had an effect on her some. I would always think, well, I can't even imagine if I wouldn't have been able to come see my mom. She was used to seeing me 25 to 30 hours a week. 
God forbid, she wasn't able to see me at all. I mean, I just felt so blessed for that. But then also extra nervous with COVID at the same time, because I was getting tested every week along with their staff to make sure I didn't have COVID. So as scary as COVID was, and I also had this underlying anxiety that God forbid I get COVID, not only for myself, I didn't even care about myself, but for my mom. And um, end of July, my now fiance and I decided to take a quick little trip to the Florida Keys. We just wanted to be in nature and kind of get out of Miami. And I always say that God forced us to do it because there was actually a hurricane coming and we were debating whether we should go. And we said, you know what, even if we have to stay inside our Airbnb the whole time, we're just going to go because we're getting away. And right when I got back, um, mom had gotten a UTI, which she got so many times before it was not uncommon. So I'm just thinking, all right, we get the urine sample. We go through the whole, I mean, I knew the drill of a UTI at at this point in time. And I figured she'll get on an antibiotic and she'll start getting better. And it was kind of weird because at one point she was just like in bed and she wasn't opening her eyes. She wasn't really eating and she wasn't really drinking. And I just thought to myself, well, it's the UTI. She'll get better. She'll get better. And she didn't get better. And, um, I, I made the decision with kind of being forced a little bit by her primary that I really needed to look into hospice. So here I was hearing this six letter word again. And I thought, well, at this point, what, what is it going to hurt? So I vividly remember the hospice coordinator, the intake person coming in and trying to talk to me about all the different services hospice offers. And like, this was also when I started sleeping at my mom's and being there 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Because again, I thought if I was with my mom and she had my presence there and, you know, I was the one trying to feed her and do all the things she would get better going through all of this by myself, I decided to bring hospice in. Everything just happened so fast. And then all of a sudden, one day she just forgot how to swallow. So then we couldn't put any fluid down her. She couldn't take in any food. She couldn't even take her medication. I was like panicking and I was like, I don't know what to do. And as a caregiver, we always know that when something happens, we just spring into action. We figure it out. We do the research or figure out like what the best next step for our loved one is. And at this point, like I did not know what to do. So I decided to send my mom into hospice inpatient because I thought, well, maybe if they put her on an IV of fluid, maybe she just needed, again, still hopeful, just still really not seeing what was in front of me that my mom was done fighting the fight. So sent her into hospice inpatient to try to get some fluid in the hopes that maybe it would revive, you know, revitalize her. I think I was the only one that was aware that it wouldn't, but you know, hospice respected my wishes. And I remember thinking like, I vividly remember my mom being taken by transport. And I remember saying to her like, mom, you're going to come back. It's okay. And, um, and when I walked in, it was, it was like a shell of a person. Um, that was there. And I was aware and I knew that this was probably it, you know, before I had said, I want her to come home because the doctor, the hospice doctor had called and said, I really think you need to come. You know, I didn't necessarily want her to pass away in a hospital. So I had said, I want you to start putting the paperwork in to send her back home. But once I got there that day, I, I just knew that 
I didn't want to move her. I didn't, I didn't want her to have to be taken because even though it was like home, you know, I think it's different for people that lived in the same home and have all these memories, you know, while it was home, it wasn't this place that she had all these incredible memories and it wasn't the home that I was raised in. Yeah. So, um, I saw her on a Wednesday and she passed the following Thursday. Um, and I actually went back to see her one more time, even though I had said all my goodbyes and done everything. Um, I went back one more time when I learned that the, the sense of hearing is the last thing to go, which I didn't know. And I went back and then she passed the next day. So yeah, it was definitely 2020 was a, is a super hard year. That's for sure. I'm so sorry. Do you feel like it's harder because it's like also losing an identity? So you, you lost your mom, but then you also lost that caregiving identity. Yes. I, I actually talk about this topic a lot because when I was caring for my mom, one thing that I would always say, and and mind you, I was very fortunate to be able to go home to my own apartment at night. I was fortunate to be able to have some free time to be able to go take a walk on the beach or go have dinner with friends. Whereas so many people don't have that option. And I think that's really where you lose your sense of self-identity. But I always told myself and was selfish at times in my caregiving journey, because I always said that my mom's not going to be here one day and I don't want to be like, who am I now? What do I do now? I I, I didn't want to be in a place where I was completely lost and felt like I had to start over from scratch. That's why I started my own business. I thought I was insane for starting my own business (laughs) while caregiving, knowing my mom was only going to get worse. But having quote graduated from caregiving and being one year out from it, it's like, while I, while I lost that piece of my identity, I always did my best to try to maintain who I was throughout that caregiving journey. It's just now a piece of that identity has been taken away and actually transferred into a newfound identity. And that's, that's in supporting caregivers versus being a caregiver myself. So my guess is that a lot of caregivers needed to hear that right now. Mm -hmm. I think that's so important that it kind of like what we were talking about before, that it's not selfish, it's self-care. Exactly. And that's what you did. And Mm -hmm. I, and I think I'm guessing your mom would be very proud of you for doing that. (laughs) (laughs) I think so. I think so. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, you know, you always hear as a caregiver and I know to some, it's just like, how can people say self-care, self-care? Like I barely even have time to take a shower, you know, while caring for my loved one, I barely have time to do anything, but I know that I would always say, and I understand that I was in a, in a very different situation where I had some freedoms, but I would always say, even if that means five minutes, 10 minutes a day, doing something that lights you up and brings you joy, like doing something that you would do pre caregiving. Now I'm not saying like, I used to go backpack for backpacking, like across the world for two months at a time. Those days were over, right? But I also enjoyed listening to music. I also enjoyed dancing. I always enjoyed getting out in nature. So it's finding those things that you always loved to do and still love to do and really putting effort into doing them, even if it's like once a week, it's better than nothing. And I feel like in that way, despite the 
um, all the effort and the mental energy that goes into caregiving, at least you're still giving yourself a piece of that self-identity. So you don't forget who you were before caregiving. Yeah, exactly. And, and you're also giving back Yes, because you started a podcast. Yes. Tell us a little bit about that. So after my mom passed away, I had to step out of the entire caregiving world for a while. I had started an Instagram handle back in 2019, just on a whim. Mostly it was my way of kind of journaling or being a little bit cathartic in terms of conveying my emotions and my feelings in the day-to-day life of caregiving, never thinking that anybody would find my handle or read my posts, but I was doing it for me. It was a huge release. That gained traction. And I always knew, and I always said to myself that there is a reason that I became a caregiver at a younger age. Like there is a reason that I went through this experience starting at 29. There has to be a reason for this. <laughs> when I stepped out of caregiving, I, I, I knew that I needed to do something more. I knew that I needed to do something to honor my mom's memory. I knew that there was so much out there that I could probably do for other young caregivers because as a young caregiver, when I finally self-identified as a caregiver, it was huge for me, but it was also the realization that there's a huge lack of resources for younger caregivers. Even though there are common threads and common similarities amongst caregivers, no matter the age, as a younger caregiver, you're also going through so many different milestones and life changes at the same time. So I decided to start a podcast, Young Life Interrupted, which is a podcast dedicated to young caregivers. I share my story on different topics. I'm going to start having other young caregivers on to share their stories and experts in the field. And I like to think of it as another resource that young caregivers or any caregiver who wants to listen can have in their toolkit and also a means for validation. Because I think more than anything, especially when you're a younger caregiver, Mm -hmm. being able to hear someone's story who's very similar to yours just makes you feel a little bit less alone in your journey. Absolutely. Absolutely. So with everything that you have gone through, what would you say is the one thing that just made it easier for you, that just made it more doable? I think, especially now looking back, I think what made it easier for me and more doable was just knowing that I was giving so much back to my mom, um, that I was giving to her everything that she gave to me as a child. Um, and I felt like I was showing her, I mean, my mom said countless times, like, thank you for being such an amazing daughter. Thank you for everything that you're doing for me. Like, I know it's hard. I know it's not easy. And just thank you. And I know a lot of people don't hear the thank yous. My mom didn't say it all the time, but when she did say it, I think it was just getting those little slivers of golden nuggets from her that, that really made it all worth it. Um, it really did. And I think that motivated me and that kept me going. And also the recognition and the realization that I wanted to know that when my mom died, I did everything I could for her. I wanted to make sure I did everything I could for her from a medical standpoint, that I had those mother daughter years, even though they weren't what I always envisioned them to be. But just wanting to know that I never wanted to look back and I never wanted to have any regrets when it came to my mom's care or the time that we had in the end. And I, and I really think that, that that's what kept me going. 
And it was my mom. She was my best friend. She was my number one. So I never really saw it any other way. My mom, my mom and the fight that she put up kept me going too. Check out this episode's doable download in show notes for details, including industry terms and definitions we discussed, as well as a bonus tip from our guest. Have questions or your own tips to share? Leave us a message. We'd love to hear from you. And until next time, make it doable.